For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Look at verse 3. Not knowing about God's righteousness, that is the underlying theme of Romans, and seeking to establish their own, Israel didn't subject itself to the righteousness of God. That is a picture, an accurate portrayal of individuals today, not really understanding how righteous God really is, not understanding that righteousness is only found in Christ, and seeking to establish our own righteousness. People are unwilling to submit to the righteousness of God. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Welcome to Downtown Bible Class with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Today we continue in our study of the book of Romans. Pastor Scott brings part two of the message titled, An Introduction to Romans 9 through 11. We invite you to follow along with us now as we get started. Paul's heart for Israel, and by the way, when I say Paul's heart, he's the inspired apostle here. He's a reflection of God's heart for Israel. And he moves from this position or this statement of amazing love to unceasing grief as he thinks of Israel's unbelief and the heartache that just permeates his soul as he thinks of Israel's unbelief. Is Israel's unbelief then... Uh, and failure, a contradiction of God's promises. God has promised to bless Israel. Is Israel's unbelief a failure of God's word to be accomplished? Oh, no. Look at verse 6. It's not as though the word of God has failed. For they are not all Israel who are descended from Israel. Now, he's already said this once back in chapter 3. Remember at the end of chapter 2, he said that being a true Jew is a matter of the heart is not the outward circumcision and jumping through the right hoops. And he says, and he asked then, what's the advantage of being a Jew then? And he answered it briefly, but he hasn't. He's kind of, he's he left that unanswered, you might say. He answered it briefly, but he's going to really answer it in chapters 9, 10, and 11. And so he gets here and he says, oh, I have a heart for Israel. Don't misunderstand me. I have unceasing grief for Israel and sorrow. But don't think the Word of God has failed. God's sovereign plan is not short-circuited. We just saw in chapter 8 that nothing can thwart the purposes of God, and Israel's unbelief does not short-circuit God's plan at all. In fact, being a Jew, a true Jew, being an Israelite has never been just a matter of physical lineage. And so he goes on and he says, you know, God said it's going to be through Isaac your descendants will be named, not Ishmael even though they both came from Abraham. Well, somebody says, yeah, but uh, Ishmael was, you know, wasn't a true Jew. He was from Hagar, the Egyptian maid. And we've been looking at that in Genesis. And and so you might say, yeah, so that's an exception. Well, then he goes and he says, okay, what about Rebecca? She had twins. I mean, those are equally Jewish, huh? Jacob and Esau. And yet God purposed not to bless Esau, but Jacob. Well, then someone says, is God's purposes, are they so sovereign that that He's unjust, that He's unrighteous? Verse 14, what shall we say then? There's no injustice with God, is there? May it never be. God is God. And He can do and will do Whatever he pleases. He is the righteous one and he always acts in righteousness. Man is sinful. 
Jew or Gentile alike, we deserve judgment. Hence, if God's going to save anyone, it's going to be by His sovereign grace. And verse 16 is a great statement of it. So then it does not depend on the man who wills or the man who runs, but on God who has mercy. And He is going to save His remnant from Israel. Verse 27. And He is going to save that remnant on the basis of faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 33. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and he who believes in Him will not be disappointed. You see... He says, in the past, God's purposes in choosing out Israel and in blessing Israel, He sovereignly worked, and it was all according to His great plan. And the fact that, by and large, the nation rejected their Messiah did not thwart God's purposes. He is still at work, and He is going to incorporate Israel into His overall plan of redemption and salvation, and He will be glorified in Israel through His righteous remnant. Now, chapter 10 says, and just walk with me through it, chapter 10 explains that Christ's great work on the cross makes it possible to say today, presently, to anyone and to everyone, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and you'll be saved, Jew or Gentile alike. There's no distinction. Read with me the first few verses. Brethren, he says, my heart's desire And my prayer to God for them is for their salvation. Still speaking of the nation Israel now. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not in accordance with knowledge. For not knowing about God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own, they did not subject themselves to the righteousness of God. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes." Well, I'll tell you, right there, I said God's dealings with Israel are a picture of His dealings with individuals. Look at verse 3. Not knowing about God's righteousness, that is the underlying theme of Romans, and seeking to establish their own, Israel didn't subject itself to the righteousness of God. That is a picture of an accurate portrayal of individuals today not really understanding how righteous God really is, not understanding that righteousness is only found in Christ, and seeking to establish our own righteousness, people are unwilling to submit to the righteousness of God. But Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. And then he unfolds that in chapter 10 with the great call to anyone and everyone to believe in the Lord Jesus and be saved. And God in the past chose out Israel. Israel spurned him. God has opened the door to Jew and Gentile alike. And presently today, whoever, look at verse 11, whoever believes in him will not be disappointed. Verse 13, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord, will be saved. But sadly, I say sadly, by and large, Israel did not believe and did not call on the name of the Lord. And by the way, you can say the same thing about the rest of the world. Jesus said the door is narrow and the gate is small that leads to life, and few are those who find it. 
But the chapter 10 closes with the mournful, look at verse 21. As for Israel, he says, all the day long I've stretched out my hands to a disobedient and obstinate people. A picture of God saying to Israel, come to me. Jesus weeping over Israel. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem. If only you'd known the hour of your visitation. But all day long, God stretches his hands out to a disobedient and obstinate people. Well, then has Israel's rejection of Christ and rejection of God's purposes, has Israel's national disobedience thwarted God's purpose for Israel? He still raises the question. Then is God's word toward Israel been canceled or nullified? Verse 1, I say then, God has not rejected His people, has He? May it never be. I too am an Israelite, he says, a descendant of Abraham of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Or don't you know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah? And he goes on and he says, listen, may it never be. God's purposes for Israel will be accomplished. He has not rejected his people forever. He maybe has set them aside, but he has not rejected his people permanently. And he still has a purpose for Israel. And he begins by saying, listen, right now, there's a godly remnant. I myself am a Jewish believer. Is that all that God's saying? That God will save Jews individually like he did Saul of Tarsus and and, uh, a lot of the early Christians? Is that all that, will that be the fulfillment? Well, some say, yeah, that's it. Uh, he's done with Israel, and it's just if a Jew will believe today, they can be saved just like a Gentile, and that pretty much... And they kind of just forget all the special promises to national Israel. And so Paul says, no, it's not just that. That is certainly true. God is not done with Israel. He saved me, Paul said. I'm a picture of that. But he is still working... Uh, and going to work in the future yet with Israel. Verse 11, I say then, they did not stumble so as to fall, did they? May it never be. But by their transgression, salvation has come to the Gentiles to make them, Israel, jealous. God, by the transgression of Israel, by their unbelief, has kicked the door open, you might say, to Jew and Gentile alike. And as Gentiles are coming to Christ... Paul says, and he comments on this at length from verse 11 down through verse 24, that he, God, is going to provoke Israel to jealousy through the salvation of the Gentiles. And in that he says, listen, if God can use Israel's failure to be a great blessing to the world, just think what he will use, how he will use Israel to bless the world when Israel comes back to him in humble faith and belief. And uh, he has a view toward saving Israel. He's going to purge Israel, looking into the future. Read with me verse 25. I don't want you to be, brethren, uninformed of this mystery, lest you be wise in your own estimation, that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. And thus all Israel will be saved, just as it is written. The deliverer is going to come from Zion. He will remove ungodliness from Israel. He will purge his nation of unbelief. And this is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. All Israel is going to be 
saved, he says. From the standpoint of the gospel, they're enemies for your sake. But from the standpoint of God's choice, they are beloved for the sake of the fathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. God is not going to just forget about Israel. He is going to purge Israel. Israel's been through many purges through this era in their rejection of God as they've been set aside. There's coming one yet, the Bible describes in the end of of the book, in the book of Revelation, where there will be a tremendous purge of the unbelief in Israel. Israel, and the remnant of Israel will then turn to their Savior and be saved. God's purposes will be accomplished. Now, he summarizes it. Look at verse 30. Just as we, as you once were disobedient to God, but now have been shown mercy because of their disobedience, so these also now have been disobedient in order that because of the mercy shown to you, they also may now be shown mercy. For God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. If you've stuck with his argument, if you've seen what he said, he's saying, listen, Jew and Gentile alike are shut up in disobedience, and God is the Savior from A to Z. And his purposes in individuals' lives and nationally and what he's doing in history one day will be seen to be all of his grace all by his mercy. And having said that, verse 32, God has shut up all in disobedience that he might show mercy to all. He bursts into praise. Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways. For who has known the mind of the Lord or who became his counselor? Or who has first given to him that it might be paid back to him again? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. Paul bursts into praise as he looks at the panoramic view of what God is doing, and it is all to God's glory and to God's sovereign mercy and grace, and he bursts into praise, and we will too, I'm confident, when we get to the end of these three chapters. It's the proper place to be. Now look back at the start again. Look at chapter 9. And if you want to say it in a broad sense, you might say this. Chapter 9, God's righteous dealings with Israel in the past. He he was righteous when he chose Israel out. God's righteous dealings presently when he is opening the door to all, Jew and Gentile alike. And God's righteous dealings, chapter 11, 9, 10, 11. Chapter 11, in the future, he will fulfill his promises to the nation. And he will do so in such a way that his glory will be maximized. His grace will be glorified. His mercy will be magnified. Now, having said that, let me just read these verses once again, and let's pause and think on them even as we come to the close of our time here. He said, nothing can separate us from God's love. And he's basking in it. And he says then, all of a sudden, I'm telling the truth in Christ. I am not lying my conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing grief in my heart over my kinsmen according to the flesh. Christian, don't forget that. It is possible for you to be basking in the unchangeable, 
unthwartable love of God that you cannot be separated from even while you're experiencing grief and a relentless sorrow, a great sorrow for those who are lost. In fact, it's not just possible. I believe it's inevitable. The healthy Christian will not only bask in God's love, but simultaneously to that, in this unredeemed world, while we rejoice in what God has done for us and we say nothing can separate me from His love, simultaneously we are burdened by the lost condition of those around us. Some of you right now are basking in God's grace and His love, and yet you have a great sorrow for those who are related to you. Your kinsmen, as I see there in verse 3, according to the flesh. Maybe your own children. Maybe your parents. Maybe your spouse. You have that burden. And that's exactly as Paul was. You see, a healthy Christianity is not content to just bask in the blessings in as long as this world exists as it does, we are looking around and seeing lost people. And I'll tell you what, Paul manifests a heart much like Moses here. Remember when Moses said, Oh, Lord, forgive your people, but if you can't, blot me out of your book. Paul has that kind of love, that Christ-like love when he looks at Israel, and it's God's love for Israel. And he says, oh, I have un." unceasing grief, great sorrow in my heart. And I'm not just saying this. He wasn't just cranking up the end of a sermon or, you know, kind of saying the proper thing. Look at verse 1. I'm telling the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bearing me witness in the Holy Spirit. Paul didn't say those things lightly. He said, I'm telling you, my heart is burdened. You see, Paul knew what Moses knew. He knew... And he has taught it very clearly, and he's been throughout the Roman Empire clearly telling that there is salvation in no one else. There is no other name under heaven save the name of Jesus by which men can be saved. And when I look around today at a world that is spurning Christ, when I see people whose only time they mention His name is in blasphemous oaths, if my heart isn't burdened, there's something wrong. No, Paul loves Christ. He loves His... He enjoys that He can't be separated from the love of Christ. But he says, oh, I have unceasing grief when I look at the lost. He not only knew there's salvation in no one else, but he knew the eternal punishment that awaits those who spurned the only Savior. And he had real sorrow. Jeremiah of old, same heart. He said, oh, that my head were like a fountain. I could just weep more for Israel as he thought of the unbelief of Israel. You know, as we close, it's appropriate, I think, that as we come around the table and enjoy the family blessings, as we enjoy the fact that God loved us while we were yet sinners, we should never lose our heart and our burden for those maybe right next door, maybe right next bedroom in our home, for those right down the street and for those around the world. 
And he's going to open our mind up to the whole world in this section who don't know Christ, who don't know about the righteousness of God and hence are seeking to establish their own and will not submit to the righteousness of God in Christ. Oh, we should never allow our joy to keep us from that healthy concern and sorrow for those who are lost, that evangelistic heart that Jesus manifests that is the heart of God. For God so loved the world that He sent His Son. And Jesus said, As the Father has sent me, so I send you. And I'll tell you, I'll say the same thing. And I think it's remarkable. This is not meant to compromise our joy or our love at all or our peace. Not at all. And even as he goes through and speaks through the plan of God, he starts with sorrow in chapter 9. And where does he end? At the end of 11. Oh, the depth of the riches. When he really sees God's plan, he doesn't shake his finger at God by any means. He is burdened for lost people. But when he sees the whole scope of God's plan, he praises God. But don't ever allow your understanding of the sovereign purposes of God to create in you kind of a cold detachment or a dry theology. And that's happened throughout the centuries time after time. It happens in our generation. I know people who pride themselves in understanding God's sovereign purposes and have allowed their heart to grow cold toward people, the object of God's love, and the whole focus of why He sent His Son to save, seeking to save that which was lost. Paul doesn't do that. And I'll tell you what, we shouldn't either. But neither do we need to be apologizing for God or in any way letting the burden overwhelm us. No, Paul keeps that balance and he ends up closing chapter 11 Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are His judgments and unfathomable His ways. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Or who has become His counselor? Or who has in any way paid to God so that He owes Him something? Who has first given to the Lord that it might be paid back to Him? Oh, no. For from Him and through Him and to Him are all things. To Him be the glory forever. Amen. That's where we close as Christians. And I speak to you now and I look at each of you and I say, are you a Christian? Have you responded to God's love in Christ? Have you personally set aside your own self-righteousness of which you have none, really? And have you laid claim on His grace through Christ? Today, if you hear His voice, don't harden your heart. Come to Christ. You've been listening to Downtown Bible Class with Pastor Scott Gilchrist. Please stay with us. Pastor Scott will return in just a moment with a preview of our next broadcast. Today's program was titled, An Introduction to Romans 9-11, through a message from our series in the Book of Romans. If you missed a portion of the message heard on the program today or you'd like to share it with a friend, head on over to downtownbible.org. A free copy of today's entire message is available there for you to stream or download at your convenience. We're thrilled to announce the publication of a new book written by Pastor Scott Gilchrist. It's called A Brief Exposition of Romans. It's a 266-page chapter-by-chapter commentary on Romans that we're sure will enhance your understanding of this critical book in the New Testament. The book is available online at Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and most other online booksellers. 
But during our study of Romans, we'd like to send you a copy as a thank you for a gift of any amount to the ministry of Downtown Bible. You can find us online at downtownbible.org or by mail at P.O. Box 19191, Portland, Oregon, 97280. We'd love to put this valuable resource in your hands. We're continuing to see new growth in the Romans Project on the continent of Africa. Most recently, we've added the countries of Guinea, Mali, Senegal, Ivory Coast, Gabon, Madagascar, and South Africa to the ever-expanding outreach of the project. We'd like to invite you to learn more about this ministry or to become a partner with us as we minister to pastors and church leaders throughout Africa. Just navigate over to romansproject.org or connect with us at facebook.com slash romansproject. Now, before we end our time today, let's go to Pastor Scott for a preview of our next broadcast. Everything hinges on the Word of God. The security of the believer, the grasp of God's grace, the fact of God's grace. Everything that he's just explained through eight chapters hinges on God's Word. And when Paul looks at the failure of Israel, who had all these privileges to believe, he says, has God's Word failed? No way. It is not as though... God's Word has failed. Don't ever forget that. Heaven and earth will pass away, Jesus said, but my Word will not pass away. God is not a man that He should lie, nor a son of man that He should repent. Has He said and will He not do it? Has He spoken and will He not make it good? Balaam, the false prophet, was forced to say that. He was forced to underline the truth that God's Word will be accomplished. When God says something, He means it. And one day, all of history will display the faithfulness of God to His Word. Join us again next time as we continue our series through the book of Romans. Pastor Scott brings a message titled, God's Word Has Not Failed. Until then, may the grace of the Lord Jesus be with you 